Welcome back to A Time of Monsters, a podcast about our descent into barbarism and the radical left struggle against it. I'm Aaron. Today, our guest is Mariah Parker, County Commissioner of District 2 in athens Clark County, Georgia, and the MC known as Lingua Franca. Broadly speaking, the U.S. socialist left has historically approached electoralism, and the Democratic Party in particular, with skepticism, and for good reason. Often called the graveyard of social movements, the party has embraced neoliberalism since the 1970s, offering their corporate donors further privatization of the public sector, deregulation, and austerity, while narrowing the political expectations of the working class. However, since the presidential campaigns of Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020, a fresh and younger crop of progressive and even explicitly socialist office holders inspired by his vision have attempted to take power back from the corporate wing of the Democratic Party, advocating for policies like Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, and defunding the police. Mariah is one of these elected officials working to shift the Overton window to the left. In today's episode, we talk about her run for county commissioner, her work in office, the intersection between her music and her politics, and more. If you like this interview and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash adampod and become a patron for exclusive content, including weekly news updates. All right, here's Mariah Parker. Enjoy. Recording this on September 24th. So, yesterday, Mariah, of course, as we all know, there was the no indictment of the officers involved in the Breonna Taylor shooting. One, actually, one officer was charged with uh, wanton endangerment. So, how are you feeling, man? Feeling pretty down, discouraged. I've been, I've been organizing a lot of direct action here in Athens mm-hmm. over the last several months. And uh, I, you know, felt called to put something together to mobilize some people in response to the no indictment. But honestly, a large part of me was just like, why the fuck even bother anymore? Like, we've been out here in these streets for months and months now and like have seen no changes. Like my fellow elected officials don't even show up to these things. Like they're not even hearing the people, their anguish, their heartbreak, their like desire for change, their policy solutions they like to see happen. And so... I'm just feeling like a massive sense of discouragement right now. But I'm trying to like also catch myself because the truth was always that the system would never deliver justice. Exactly. Like it's not really what it's designed for. And, you know, I always study history in moments like these to learn how struggles like ours have played out, you know, on past roads behind us and and try to discern some lessons from those things. And I was drawn back to the story of the Gina Six back in 2006, the six young men that were charged with attempted murder for a um, schoolyard fight in response to some racially charged incidents between them and some white classmates down in Gina, Louisiana. And tens of thousands of people from across the country, you know, Al Sharpton, like rappers, celebrities, actors, 20,000 people descended on Gina to decry the charges that had been brought against these young men. And people at that time were saying that was going to be the new civil rights movement. Yeah. That a lot, a lot of punditry, people saying the civil rights movement is back and this is our moment. But what they got caught up in at that time was protesting the charges that had been brought against these particular young men. And yes, it is important to bring justice for individual people, but their failure to translate their outrage in that moment into an indictment of the system as a whole 
into calls for transformative change of our entire criminal justice system to pinpoint the systemic nature of what these young men were facing. As a result of that, nothing happened. I mean, like the charges got dropped against the young men, but like it didn't turn into a nationwide movement. Nothing happened to reform the system. No policy recommendations came forward that were like taken up and carried forth by folks in other municipalities and cities. So in this moment, as we are watching once again, the failure of our current system to deliver justice, it was it was going to deli- it was going to fail to deliver justice no matter what, because putting these folks in jail was not going to dismantle uh, white supremacy, wasn't dismantle. It wasn't going to stop state vi- future incidences of state violence. And so we need to make sure that in this moment, we learn from the Gina moment mm. and remember to refocus ourselves on the broader goals of prison abolition and abolishing the police and how to um, enact changes within our local governments. Because like we have so much local control, you know, yeah. a lot of the federal policy, it feels very much out of our reach. Like we can't do shit about Mitch McConnell. We can't do shit about Bill Barr. But, <laughs> exactly. you know, you can go to your city council person's house. You know, you can get them to have sit down and have coffee with you and talk through like the, the policy changes you would like to see. And so remembering this moment that that has always been the only way to get justice for all the people that have been slain by the police and all the victims of mass incarceration and police violence is to demand structural and transformative change. And so that's what I'm trying to hold on to in this moment. Yeah, I like I like that you contextualize things through historical lens. That's like what a lot of um, not just what I do, but I hope this podcast is going to do. Yeah. And for your own personal history, you grew up outside of Louisville, Kentucky. I did. I did. Yeah. Can can you tell me a little bit about before we move on to Athens, Georgia, where you are now? Can you tell me a little bit about that experience growing up there and your I mean, furthermore, I guess your reaction to, you know, the Breonna Taylor, not just the shooting, but the protest and the movement that's kind of erupted out of that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, my upbringing in in, outside of Louisville, Kentucky uh, was an interesting one in terms of uh, awareness of the failures of our dichotomization of race. Hmm, what do you mean by that? So, so I talk about the, so I, I talk about in terms of failure because we think of we think of race as a binary, right? And so, you know, I yeah, I'm African American on the outside and then culturally. But like, I also have Native American people in my heritage. I I may have some European American folks in my heritage. But you know, I grew up I'm on outside you have to pick a pick a side essentially and so um i experienced growing up in a predominantly white school system that on the one side there were a lot of uh, my fellow black kids that went to the school who were all a part of the same family and there's this sense of tribalism and so like i was an outsider there um on account of not being a part of the of the family that was like the main black folks in the town and then on the white side, I mean, there were a lot of folks that like pushed back on, you know, why your hair is so nappy. And like, I got called a lot of racist names and, you know, shunned socially. But the white side of, you know, the folks that I was interacting with within the school system. And then in particular, being educated by white teachers, I had a particular instance in the fifth grade where we were tasked with looking up on like Ask Jeeves or wherever, like where our families were from based on our last names. And so I look up my last name and it says the last name Parker is from Ireland. And our task then is to put together a presentation about where our families are from based on our last name, you know, and what we found on the Internet. And so my white teacher did not stop me from coming to school and giving a presentation in a, in a little Irish accent fuck, about dude? how my family came to America during the potato famine. Oh, my God. Because it was too difficult for her to address the fact that, I am light skinned because 
there was probably a rape in my family's history. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, anti-miscegenation laws and other ways of obscuring history have made it so that it's more difficult for me than for a white person to ascertain where my people come from because they didn't keep very uh, uh, close records of where, um, you know, like the lineages of folks that had intermarriages. The only records that they that they kept, they'll just cut you off, but the only records that they kept were like, if you were a slave, like it was like a ledger, like a bank ledger. Exactly. Right? It was an account of property, right? Continue. Sorry, I just wanted to point that out, yeah. And even still to say that my people were only from Africa and were only slaves further erases my native heritage. And what happened to the folks that first claimed this land, first stewarded this land, um, they're, they're, you know, the genocide that was waged against them and the way that um, historically my family have had to pick a side between the white side and the black side, completely erasing our native, our native lineage. And so that experience is really interesting for me. It was when I got to be older and reflecting upon those that I kind of realized the way that our binarization of race just kind of fails us as people. Yeah. Um, but, I, but, I, but I had a lot of early lessons, even if it took until adulthood to sort of unpack them and understand what they meant for me and why I'm now, you know, a very big proponent of working class solidarity. Yeah. You know, seeing race as this construct that ultimately is meant to divide us is how it has historically been used to divide us to keep us fighting amongst ourselves while the rich get infinitely richer. Yeah. And so um, some, like, taking some of those early life experiences and bringing that into my, you know, current worldview of the importance of working class solidarity, international working class solidarity as yeah. well. It's funny that you say that because, um, you know, I um, I have an episode about the Civil War with Matt Chrisman from Chapo. That's what's up. And um, the sort of dialectical nature of race and class and this idea that, you know, Black Americans, there is just a kind of amalgamation, right, of lineage, mm -hmm. right, where not only do you have like, you know, native blood mixed in, but white blood as well, right, yeah. with African blood. So this idea that anyone who is like considered black now can trace their ancestry back to like one individual, like my last name is Thorpe, for example, my parents from Jamaica, right? Mm -hmm. That's not my, you know, that's, that's not my, that ancestry, right? That's not, it's not my last name, you know what I mean? Nah. Like, it's a British last name, you know, mm -hmm. because Jamaica was colonized by the British. And even within the Black community, it's like, I'm from the West Indies, so I don't have the experience necessarily of a Black American, right? Yeah. And Black Americans, right, don't have the same experience that, like, you know, like I do or Black immigrants do. And that sort of pitting one against each other within our own culture, right? That has made it like... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's made it... It's made, and colorism as well, added into that. Which colorism as well. So let's kind of turn then to... Because, I mean, I could... We could rant about this shit like all fucking day, man. What happened last night. I mean, the protests, but also just the complete inept response of like Democratic politicians and sort of the enabling, not even just from yesterday's, you know, protests and ruling... But the enabling of like white militia groups and white supremacists as well. And yeah. Um, but let me ask you though, you ran for a special election in 2018. That's correct. And what is your what is your you're a radical black woman, right? Yes. Like straight up, right? So when I found out about you online and you know, followed you, I was like, dude, you got elected in Athens, Georgia. Like I'm living in Atlanta, by the way. Yeah. Right. So I'm not very familiar with the demographics. What was your approach to campaigning and organizing people? How did you how did you end up winning that election? Because you only won you won it by 13 votes. That's correct. Yeah. And so, I mean, my approach to it was, again, one of working class solidarity. I had worked in the service industry. I worked at bars, worked at print shops, worked at diners. 
Um, and so bringing a lot of those folks that I have, you know, shared beers with at the end of like a 14 hour shift talking about how we're so thankful that we're going to be able to pay the utilities this month because we got tipped out enough. Like all those people who I built solidarity with through just like the drinking culture of Athens working class were the same people I was hitting up to say, hey, yo, what's up? Like, come knock on some doors with me. If you, you got Monday off, you got Tuesday off, you got Wednesday off. All right, come through. Same folks that um, I organized with through the hip hop scene because, you know, before, yeah, I'm, I'm an MC. Yeah, we're going to get to that too. Um, I, I really cut my teeth in political organizing, organizing hip hop shows. The same tools of, of motivating a crowd, of getting people in a room, of holding people captive with storytelling and, and platforming important voices. Like those are all things that I was doing as a hip hop promoter. And so bringing in those folks that I had organized shows with, these rappers, these artists, these musicians, White and black, you know, within the punk rock scene and the metal scene here in Athens, too, getting those people out, knocking on doors, um, you know, organizing the young people. A lot of folks who were, you know, frankly, you know, they're students at the University of Georgia, maybe a little disconnected from the community, to give them this opportunity to go out into these neighborhoods who are the folks that are keeping the university afloat through their work in the maintenance industry or the, you know, in the, in the cafeterias or mm-hmm. sweeping the floors or, you know, keeping the lights on. To learn about these neighborhoods through conversation at these doors with these folks who um, who'd never had a canvasser come to their door before. Mm. And so really just through empowering the folks in Athens who had never been involved in politics before, never seen someone like them running for office to not only like, hey, yo, come help out on my campaign, but let me train you in the way we talk about issues. And what it means to organize, you know, by going out and doing this community outreach. Um, so that, that you can turn around and use it to organize your union or you can turn around and do an issue based campaign. And so mm. it was never just about trying to win an election like I ran because I just believe in democracy and whether they voted me in or not. I wanted to use the opportunity to transform people's imagination of what was possible for their neighborhoods and for themselves through getting involved in a campaign. So like people might uh, might not vote me in. But I can mainstream a lot of radical ideas to bring them to people's doorsteps. The raising of class consciousness, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, I mean, we ran a crazy ground game, just like had six, seven, eight pairs of canvassers out every day. Uh, If it was raining, we were in here on the phones. And yeah, so I had like no money, no like political connections in town. Just purely, I had a bunch of like alcoholic fry cooks and like university freshmen and the working class, yo. The working class. I had the working class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's ultimately, and I, I tell the story sometimes, like ultimately I was standing in the elementary school parking lot. It's one of the voting sites that day in the rain, waving my sign around. And I have people pull up eating like, I don't know, oatmeal out of a, of a styrofoam cup and say, yo, I heard there was an election today. Like, who do you think I should vote for? I was like, well, as a matter of fact, I'm the ballot. My opponent, I saw him roll up in his like SUV with his tinted windows. And he rolled, rolled him up when he saw me out there. Yeah. He wasn't out there in the streets putting his body on the line to send that meager message, that mm-hmm. meager final message on that last day. But for me, I might have talked to, a, to a 10 or 11 people that day who didn't know who to vote for before they pulled into that parking lot. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to people a lot about the importance of more folks like us running because these local elections end up being real close. And we can seize the power on the local level real easy if we run a good ground game. And win or lose, we ultimately raise the bar for what people think their local government should do for them. Exactly. And exactly. that that is the real victory. Yeah. So what gave you the impetus? 
impetus to run for office in the first place? Like, had you ever tried to run for public office before that? Oh, hell no. (laughs) Man, I am a formerly drug-addicted rapper with, like, also, a criminal record, like all sorts of just nah. Sounds like you should. You sound like you fit right in. Right? Like, I mean, I really do fit right in. The difference between me and your average politician—it's not that politicians don't have abortions. It's not that politicians haven't done cocaine. It has not that politicians haven't been in handcuffs. They're just quiet about it, and they try to project this, 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 uh, this crystalline like purity yeah. about themselves. When like I find it a lot more generative to be bluntly honest about who I am and what I've done because people deserve representation that like embraces the common lived experience of the everyday man. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm in here representing for the folks who have been at handcuffs and for the folks that, you know, have worked three or four jobs to keep the lights on. And so I talk about that, but um, I, I, I never thought I was going to be run for office like ever, ever, ever. Until through hip hop, I met a candidate for a county commission who was a former rapper himself. And he sat down with me and started talking about, you know, his agenda for Athens, as well as the skills that we as hip hop artists cultivate that are very, very much synonymous with some of the skill sets of a politician. Mm. So like I was saying earlier about the organizing around, you know, hip hop show promotion, there's also the level of being able to think flexibly and respond to opposition gracefully on your feet, which are skills we learned through rap battles. Mm. How to dab somebody up after they trash you in a rap battle, yeah. like that, as we do as politicians. Those kinds of stories that we have to tell and the ways that we tell stories are powerful ways of transmitting messages of, you know, what not only the failures of public policy that we have lived, but asserting our expertise, our lived expertise, and why that show, why that should merit uh, the power we we need to wield. That's to what put invested forward. in you. That people are right, yeah, right, people yeah. are willing to invest in you. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And so all these things that hip hop artists do that make us actually really transformative politicians if we wield our power in that way. And so I, I went from being his field director to his campaign manager to ultimately realizing that you know we'd walked on hundreds of doors and made thousands of phone calls. But if we didn't elect a progressive majority, all of the policies we had campaigned on, none of them were going to happen if unless we had a sixth man on the bench in City Hall to solidify our majority there. Mm. And so I, I, I took that into account. I took into account as well the fact that the man that was representing me at the time um, had served for 25 years running uncontested throughout those two and a half decades. Jesus. And I was just like, this ain't democracy. I don't care if I don't care if he trounces me trounces me like I get one vote. The people deserve to have options. And so I was like, win or lose, you know, I'm going to go in there and try to solidify this progressive majority. And uh, that's what ultimately pushed me to run, even though I have a very checkered past and no political experience <laughs> prior. What, what was your, what was your, um, because you studied linguistics, right? I did, yes. Yeah. So what was your political trajectory like, like between your music and between your field of study I'm not, I guess, not necessarily what radicalized you, but, like, I think that everybody, every, like, you know, lefty comrade, at some point, you look at the world and all that you have, like, knowledge you've accumulated, whether it's through, like, lived experience or through academia, you look at the world and you you start to think about your place in it, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, what you can do to change it, right? Or what you can do to contribute. Yeah. 
And what what in your studies, um, and I guess like also your music, mm-hmm. right? What radicalized you and like caused you to look at the world in like a certain kind of way, the way that like us on the left tend to do? Um, and so in terms of like formative experiences for my politics, I mean, it feels really it, it feels really like corny to say, but the Bernie Sanders campaigns were really, really formative for me. They were for a lot of people, me included, by the way. Right? Yeah, yeah. In terms of like class consciousness, uh, I've been very pro black through my music and like growing up. My parents, sort of, you know, like raised me to be a strong black woman. But thinking more in terms of, you know, looking around at like the people I worked with in the service industry and realizing, I mean, most of them are white. And so, you know, a lot of a lot of the front of house people and the managers, et cetera. And so thinking about how none of us could pay our rent. None of us, you know, all of us were like getting hammered. Whether you work in the front of house or back of house, because I worked in back of house, right? Right. And so they put, y'all, they put us in the back of the house because they don't want yeah, us. It, exactly. Exactly. Sometimes they would send me off front. But yes, there are racial divisions within the working class as well that we need to we need to fight. But uh, looking around at me, like none of the white people, like I'm like I, like I hang out with, can do. We all got student debt. Like we can't, you know, we can't afford shit. Mm. And so um, I think through the Bernie campaigns, I started to look at it that way rather than seeing them as enemies. Yeah. Like realizing that like we are all in this against uh the people at the top even like you know in the restaurants i worked at when the restaurants were having a hard time paying their rent like it's like oh it's us and the owners of this establishment versus the landlord that is renting this place out to them like even you know in, in terms of like small business entrepreneurs like they're we're all getting the boot on our neck and i didn't really realize that until probably about 2016 that like it was bigger than just about race. I mean, race, like a race analysis is critical because yeah, they still put us in the back of the house, but um, we, if we work together, we can dismantle these oppressive structures a lot more effectively than if we are fighting amongst ourselves. Well, when we're in the South, right. So we know that like, and again, you know, I have to reference the civil war because I think that the fact that white labor, you know, free white labor and slave, you know, black slave labor, and even like, you know, free black labor, were competing against each other. Right. It was an economic competition. It was a competition of resources. And race was the perfect divider, right, to compartmentalize people and have them, like, fight against each other, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it's not necessarily whether, you know, there's a primacy of class or there's a primacy of race. But, again, and people will know this, you know, the more they listen to this podcast, that uh, my view, and I think yours is, too, that they're dialectical in nature, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, they're independent of each other, but dialectical as well, right? I mean, this is why, like, we call it racial capitalism, or we should call it racial capitalism, right? Yeah. It really is a race to the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. So you say that you were inspired by Bernie. What, um, and again, like, to clarify for people, I'm going to mention at the beginning of the episode, but you are the county commissioner of District 2 in um, Athens, Athens Park County. Yeah. So um, a lot of your platform is, I mean, it's similar to, like, Sanders, and it goes even a little bit further in some ways, right? How has that been like um, during your term so far, communicating these ideas to people? Um, I mean, I'm asking you a couple questions. Let's just, I guess let's just start with communicating those ideas to people and the relationship between electoralism and governing, because you are elected official, Mm -hmm. but also coming from an activist background and trying to incorporate grassroots organizing, on the ground organizing with uh, the electoral aspect. How, how does that work out? How What success have you had with that regarding your platform? I, I think that my my training in in linguistics actually, and it's particularly as a discourse analyst, has served me really well within elected office in terms of that very question of how to communicate these ideas within different circumstances. Because the way I might talk about defunding the police 
to my neighbor or to, you know, somebody who got their car broken into last week and like wants more police. And we see that especially like with the elders in our community who like they do have this internalized acceptance of mass incarceration in the new Jim Crow as necessary evil um, yes. in our community. Um, the way I talk to them about it might be a lot different than I talk to a crowd at a direct action about it. it might be really different than the way I talk to my fellow commissioners about it. And so analyzing just like the different ways to couch the same idea based on audience is like, you know, something that I, I, I've studied a lot as a linguist and something that comes into play oftentimes. And I find that like, particularly with just like the working class or everyday folks that I represent, speaking in terms of concrete scenarios is really fruitful for helping them envision what a world, for example, without police looks like. So talking about the scenario in which their car gets broken into and someone's trying to fish some change out of their cup holder, asking ourselves why that person did that in the first place. And what interventions could have been put in place before that happened to ensure that it wouldn't happen in the first place? What did that person need? And thinking also, not just in terms of prevention strategies, but intervention strategies with regards to what sorts of responses are appropriate to different kinds of harm or crisis in our community. So talking specifically about that man standing on the train bridge who's about to jump and take his life talking very specifically about the person getting pulled over because they got a broken tail light. Scenarios that we ourselves may have been in and can connect with in terms of what would have been helpful for me to have in that moment in time. And so I, I, I think I've gotten a lot of success among particularly the elders in my community, the black, older, like church folk, you know, the Al Sharpton type. Yeah, my, you're talking about my mom. I'm talking about my mom. Yeah, yeah. I feel like my mom. Talking mean. about it in these concrete terms of like, what does this mean for you as a person in terms of police response or, or alternative to police response, you know, et cetera. Bringing to bear a lot of data is helpful with regard to the conversations that I have in my um, in my conversations with my fellow commissioners, as well as showing that this is not these are not unprecedented ideas. Uh, bringing in data from models that are being used in places like Eugene, Oregon, mm. where for 30 years now they have sent an alternative to the police for you know panhandling for uh, mental health crises for wellness checks and things of this nature since 1989. And so like letting them know that I did not just make this up, this is, you know, abolishing the police did not get invented in 2020. Like mm -hmm. there, there are active interventions that have been implemented in other municipalities that we can just copy and paste. We ain't even got to reinvent the wheel. We can copy nah, they're empirical. Empirically shown to not only save cities money, but save lives. And so um, data-driven approaches to my conversations with my fellow electeds have been helpful. Yeah, yeah. I just want to add real quick, too, like, um, before we, like, I think that's really important. And that's why I was so excited to talk to you, too, because your approach as an elected official, I always say to people, and people will hear me say this a lot, um, just meeting people where they're at. Oh, yeah. Meeting people where they're at. You said that's exactly, yeah. You said it more eloquently than I did. No, no. You said it more eloquently than I did. You know, I said it the facile sort of like, you know, but it really is as a canvasser, as a political organizer myself, that's just the best approach because you can't use the same argument for everybody, right? But the sentiment can be the same, right? So yeah, again, so continue then. What, what, well, tell me, what, what have you gotten? What have you accomplished so far and been able to accomplish? And also, if you can answer this, 
accomplishing those things with colleagues that I'm positive are more to your right, right? Yeah. Talk about that little bit of uh, that struggle, I guess, or that challenge. Yeah. And so it's interesting because the, the accomplishments for which I'm most proud are actually my failures. So like my failure to defund the police in our most recent budget discussions over the summer, we're still really transformative in terms of the community conversation around what that means and what that can look like in Athens. I think it has a lot more support than it would have a year ago, not just because of the national discourse, but because of the political, the mass political education that we did on that campaign to get that done. Um, the way the elders who are now in support of defunding the police as a result of the education and the outreach we did around that campaign to defund the police. I think that um, that's like one of the things I'm most proud of. I think, you know, suddenly now people are critical of our use of unpaid inmate labor in Athens. Whereas before people would pass these budgets to fund paying the overseers, but not the slaves, like mm. without even taking a second glance at them in our you know, policy agenda. Yep. And so yep. shifting the Overton window to the left with regards to things like that. I'm really proud of the things that I have defeated. And so like uh, de- I've defeated uh, grants for more funding for the police, grants to pay law enforcement officers to oversee unpaid inmate labor, defeated uh, proposals to expand surveillance in our community. We, it's not just about uh, abolishing the systems that currently are in place. Obviously, it's also about putting something in their place that keeps our community safer. And so taking that money that would have been spent on more security cameras in the hood and putting it into community gardens and things like that, you know, I think taking the first step to roundly reject those expansions of surveillance in the police state in the first place are, are like really hard because they're so entrenched in the way that the commission has always worked. So those are some of the things for which I'm most proud. And then in terms of like additive policy or budgetary uh, changes that I've made that I'm really proud of. I mean, I've got money for job skills training, like $40,000 grant for job skills training in my neighborhood. Uh, let's, let's see how many, like 13 new units of affordable housing. It's not many, but that's 13 families. They got a roof over their head and an opportunity of home ownership. And I want to interject real quick and just clear, just clarify this for people because county commissioner, your role is to dictate the allocation of resources for your county, correct? I'm effectively, yeah, I'm effectively a city council person. It's yeah. just that Athens is this consolidated city county. Mm. Um, and so the title is different, but I'm I, I'm a city. Yeah, I'm effectively a city council person. So we pass local ordinances, uh, legislation from anything as simple as whether or not you have to ride your bike with a helmet to as complex as do we prosecute people for you know, marijuana possession. Mm. And then, yeah, and then the budgetary considerations. So like where we actually put taxpayer dollars. Mm. And so I've gotten more funding for affordable housing a little bit, but not that much yet. But, you know, the, the, the way that's going to be transformative for, you know, half a, a dozen or so families, that makes a big difference, particularly in a district that's rapidly gentrifying. Um, you know, helping people connect with living wage employment opportunities, um, things like investing in our infrastructure, you know, so much of gang prevention is having meaningful opportunities for youth. And so investing in those, we've had success with expanding just opportunities for public engagement, getting our county commission videos online so people can see them, um, expanding the ways that we connect with the public so that we are informing people about decisions being made about their neighborhoods. I've done a lot of work around that. And so it took, I tried to think of it like this. The homie that came in before me, he served for 25 years. So I got 25 years worth of bullshit. Hell yeah. And so sure, I've been in here for two years and maybe it has made like 
$100,000, $200,000 worth of impact in terms of investment in our community. And I've defeated some expansions of the surveillance state and, and the police state, uh, and I'm proud of those. But imagining what I'm going to be able to do with another 25 years of being in here, so should I so choose to stay in this role? And if the voters so choose to have me, that is what gives me hope. That is yeah. what gives me hope. Yeah, well, you know, that's what I always say. It's a never-ending struggle, right? Yeah. It's just the idea that you do you do what you can in the time that's been allotted to you and you maximize it, right? Yeah. So what, what, what's that? What's the relationship like then with your colleagues? Because, I mean, you identify as a democratic socialist, uh, correct? I do. You do? Okay. Yeah. So uh, I think since Bernie, since 2016, that's been something that's been a little bit more sort of commonly accepted. And I think people understand what that means in terms of utilizing the state to, you know, fund social services and make sure that everyone lives lives with like dignity, uh, you know, decency and prosperity. Right. But what is it like with your uh, your counterparts who I'm assuming are the, the Democrats as well? Or is it a mixture? Yeah, our entire it's really interesting. Our entire council is Democrats. But like, that's such a meaningless term. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't fucking mean anything. Like everyone got super stoked in 2018 because we elected all these like self-described progressives. Yeah. But these are folks that are like advocating to give the police more money and like saying that financial literacy programs are going to change the hood. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, it's and, funny. And, and, and I want to I want to should talk about that a little bit more, but I also want to make an observation I think you might agree with. You've mentioned that the things that you're most proud of have actually failed, right? Yeah. But the fact that you pushed the Overton window to the left, you've elevated class consciousness. Yeah. That is more impactful, right? Right. Or as impactful, right? As if those policies have pushed through. And what we see with the Democratic Party is that they're not willing to like there are some battles worth losing. Absolutely. Right. If only to make the narrative case. Absolutely. Right. So talk a little bit about the uh, I mean, I was about the <laughs> I really don't like the Democratic Party. I really don't like liberals. So I'm going to I'm going to just talk about the fecklessness. Let's say that. Right. Uh, the ineptitude, the incompetence, maybe just of your, your colleagues and kind of that relationship with them and trying to communicate right as a black radical communicate some of these ideas to them and trying to get them not just the public but them specifically and trying to get them to push a little bit to the left so i mean i think it has been the status quo for a long time that we do have a, you know a sit we have like a uh, a weak mayor form of government so we have a city manager that oversees all the branches of the departments that affect social services. So the people that are doing the stormwater management and the sewers and the traffic engineering and the buses and et cetera. And so we have all these experts advising us on things like, you know, our wastewater treatment and where to put crosswalks and, you know, who gets the sidewalk, et cetera. And for a long time, it has been the status quo to just accept what these people or these experts are bringing forward because they're objective and they're trained in their discipline. And why not? But no one has come at it with like an equity lens at asking the right questions to start changing the way we, you know, the matrices by which we rank who's going to get the sidewalk. These little things that really affect people's quality of life and signal to them how important they are to their government and to their society. And so I, I value, I want to give my colleagues from, from some credit, those who have been there for a while, that they have absorbed some of the expertise of these engineers and these traffic managers and these, you know, transit folks. And they are very knowledgeable about these in the systems thinking kind of way about the. But it's very world. technocratic. It's very technocratic. Right. And so they are actually blank slates for the most part when it comes to like actual transformative human centered policy about equity and justice in our community. Because it's like, huh, I never really thought about that before. Like, I never really, you know, I just kind of accepted the proposals that were put ahead in front of me by these engineers and these, you know, technocrats. 
Uh, I never really thought about the human element of them. And so they aren't really, they like, I, I, I think one thing that I have been good at is catching them off guard on issues of equity and justice in a way that they're not prepared to push back on. And they go into their default mode of saying, uh, okay, that sounds fine because they don't even know how to deal with it. <laughs> nice. And so I think their ineptitude is actually a, I, I use to my benefit. Like, and I don't mind, like, I'm really glad they don't have entrenched, like, overtly white supremacist views. And yeah. they're like, actually, I think we need to, like, uh, kill all the black people. They're like, they're like Plato. They're right, like Plato. Right, right. You can kind of mold them a little bit, right? If their moral compass is, yeah, they're not is you know, <laughs> in sort of the right direction. Or they're not ready for, like, a seriously studied abolitionist to come to them and take apart their two-bit arguments against, you know, expanding our carceral state. Like, and why like, would make people safer, right? Right, exactly. Like, they aren't ready. Like, oh, wow, she's really fucking thought about this. It's like, oh, uh, yeah, bitch. Um, I have. So that is actually, I'm actually very thankful for that. I don't need a ton of cooks in the kitchen. Like electing more progressives or not, like it's fine with me, whatever. I just need people who are going to shut up and like not argue with me when it comes to like shit, like not building more jails. <laughs> well, as a former, as a former, because I used to work in, you know, we talked earlier. I told you I used to work in the kitchen too, man. Yeah. So solidarity with that. But yeah, yo, when, uh, when like, you know, three niggas are on break on a smoke break, like chilling and I'm like, damn, dude, I'm looking at the grill. I'm looking at like the tickets coming through. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. looking at the dishes piled up. I'm like, bro, I got this for now. I can hold mine for now, right? Reinforcements will come later. You know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. you do what you can do. Yeah. Um, so all right, uh that man, that is that is exactly why, right? I think that more people, and this is why I wanted you on, because with the upcoming election, and I don't really want to focus on that, that could be a whole different conversation. Ooh. I'll invite you back on for after the election, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. We we could actually talk about it a little bit if you want, man. Because um the, the work that you're doing and your approach to politics is something that is sorely needed, right? And I, I don't even think, I don't know if at this point that it's possible, right, within this iteration of the Democratic Party, one in which embraces not just data-driven, you know, technocratic sort of models, but also those, those models, those ideas being directed towards a true, genuine human purpose and goal, right, for social equity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, not just an equality of opportunity, but quality of outcome. Yeah. You know, um, and it, it seems that in this election um, and, you know, in 2016, which is why they fucking lost, um, there's just this lack of belief in any sort of people power. Right. There's this mistrust. Right. Right. Like, it seems like the Republican Party and, you know, the right, they're scared of their base. Right. Which is why they give in to them. Right, right. Right. But the Democratic Party is not even willing to engage with the yeah, wildest like, fantasies that we have, you know? They ain't scared of us for shit. They ain't scared of us. And it's not even like our fantasies are wild, right? They're not scared of us and our fantasies aren't even wild because like, you know, uh, Medicare for all or something like that, right? Is, is feasible. It's possible, right? And the approach that you have, and I think that a lot of people that may be listening to this, you know, who may be like, you know, far left, and have sort of abandoned local politics, right? Yeah. I understand. I ain't going to tell nobody what to do in the presidency, bro. I ain't going to tell nobody neither. Like, it's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know where I stand, bro. And I'm not going to use my platform to tell anybody what to do. I feel like this election is going to be a very personal choice. But people need to hear from elected officials like yourself who understand that if you keep your ear close to the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that is, like, you know, a path to, like, power. Not personal political power, but people power, right? Right, yeah. The redistribution of the power and those resources. Mm -hmm. So 
this is like what I really want to get to. Fuck all the political shit. I'm kidding. This is political, right? But it's yeah. also like something that um I've listened to your music, man. Oh, you shit. are you yeah, dude. You are an MC known as uh Lingua Franca. That's I'm hoping right, I'm pronouncing right, that yeah. correct, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um first time i uh when i want to have you on for vanguard army you know i was doing a lot of research i was reading a lot of articles and i was like shit dude let me just like fucking listen to music you know yeah and um i pulled up some videos and i mean i should have known it because you got sworn in on um you know malcolm x's autobiography yeah. right and for anyone who's sort of read that and for anyone who obviously like is into malcolm x's ideas of emancipatory politics and to hear you rap Mm-hmm. And hear the infusion of like these ideas of like liberation and what that actually means. And like, you know, the written word being like so important, right, to to giving life to like these ideals and these very material like circumstances and issues that we bring up. Um, what has your musical like, you know, trajectory been like? Has it always been as radical as you are now? You know, you could even talk about what got you into music. You can talk about how it factors into your politics. Like, Share a little bit of that, man, because yeah. you're a dope artist and people need to check you out. So, I mean, I wrote rhymes my whole life. I mean, mostly like my cousins and brothers would get together and like have ciphers. And because they're all men, I kind of and I was younger. I kind of sit on the sidelines and watch and like, scribble in my little notebook, you know, a couple of rhymes. I would like sit in anatomy class in high school and like write rhymes about how it's going to leave and smoke weed after school is out, etc. But it wasn't really until I moved to Athens and got and saw the really robust music team that they had here that I kind of wanted to jump in. And then there was per- there was personal turmoil as well. I was 2016 and following, you know, Bernie's loss and the election of Donald Trump, I became very suicidal. Mm. I was like, this is it. I'm out. What's up? I tried mm. medication and that shit just made it worse. And I was like, I'm out. Mm. Um, but then I decided to just put it into music. I was like, I have two choices right now. I either am going to end this, like I'm out, or I'm just going to like, Put it all on paper. And maybe that makes me... Fight or flight, right? Fight or flight. I'm going to put it all on paper, put it to tracks, and maybe it makes me feel better. And if it doesn't, then at least I le- left a really dope suicide note for people to, like, vibe out to. And so I started talking about my experiences with depression, my experiences with my- racial microaggression, my experiences with, like, running into the barriers to reproductive um, healthcare access, and then kind of just, like, my braggadocio raps that I wrote in 10th grade and just, like, put in a notebook and save for, like, 10 years. Yeah. And so, you know, I wrote it all. And then, like, I found that through conveying these stories, it was like building solidarity with people who did not realize there were others like them who experienced that. But, you know, I talk about in my raps how, like, growing up, people told me I talked white. And, like, I would see, I would get other sisters in the crowd to come up to me like, oh, my God, that happened to me, too. Like, I understand. Or, like, you know, someone come up to me out out of the crowd after a show and be like, yeah, I had an abortion, too. And, like, I, you know... And I was, and I regretted it, and like I didn't know what to do, et cetera. And so, like finding these moments of connection, and like finding it the, li- the liberation, these moments of liberation in showing other people that yes, me too. Like I've had these experiences as well. You're not alone. You're not alone. Yeah. And so, uh, I, that, that gave me like a reason to live. Like I started doing hip hop shows, started like you know um, trying to get off drugs, et cetera. Um, because I was like, oh, this means something, not just to myself. This isn't just catharsis. This is also cathartic for the people who are experiencing it. It's political education. Yeah. And so, and, and, and even my, my, you know, my first album isn't very overtly political. I mean, when was that released? That was released one? in 2017. So it's been mm. three years now. I can't believe it. But, um, I mean, I talk about, I talk about abortion. I talk about activism a little bit. I talk about, um, you know, uh, access to mental health care and things like that a little bit. 
But like the way that I contextualize it through live performance and the way that I discuss uh, what these songs mean, I think politicizes it in a way that helps people see the connection between their own lived experiences and public policy. And so increasingly, mm-hmm. you know, pre-pandemic when I was touring a lot, I would try to do that as political education and seeing those, the performance and, and political education is very inter- intertwined. And then throughout the pandemic, I've been writing a lot more rhymes since I used to be touring like every single weekend. But now that I'm home all the time, you know, I've been, th- my rhymes have become a lot more overtly political. I've written about general strikes and oh, about, yeah. you know, the importance of progressive policy, the importance, you know, like a rent cancellation, uh, abolishing the police, things like this. And so I'm excited to get those songs out there to model what it looks like to be very explicitly, not just like reporting what is the, what's happening on the ground in like hood communities, but like wh- like its connection to public policy in my music, because I think that the link has been implicit before, but not outright stated, as well as giving people direction in terms of where to put their emotions and political energy. I got I got rhymes about joining the DSA. You know, I got rhymes about like taking it to the streets and what it means to organize the direct action. And so political education, not just around what public policy means, but the different ways of being engaged civically. I, I'm mm. looking forward to getting those messages out there. That, that's so interesting you said that, too. And I know you were talking about, uh, you know, again, we're recording this on the 24th. So yesterday, um, you know, do a little mini plug. You were uh, my comrade Rara. Yeah. Uh, you were doing her podcast and I was watching a stream. And one of the things that I found really interesting that she said is that whether you're looking at the the genesis of uh, hip hop in the 80s in the Bronx, New York, the East Coast, or whether you're looking at what it is now um, where we live in the South, which is like, you know, trap, right? Yeah. All of this music, and I hate the term socially conscious, like hip hop, right? Because all hip hop, all rap is socially conscious. Yeah. Like it's just, uh, it's just the product of, and not just the catharsis as well, but the political education, the, it's not even a moralization really, or sort of a rationalization of selling drugs or like, you know, living a life of like so-called crime or anything like that. But it's just a retelling of lived experiences to reach out to other people, millions of other people who are also experiencing the same thing. And I think that whether you listen to like, you know, and I don't mean to say whether as a diminutive thing, but a lot of people, even people who say they love hip hop, will talk shit about new artists coming up or new sounds they're not familiar with and be like, hip hop is dead or whatever, right? But this, you know, lineage of hip hop being connected to, you know, a materialist lived experience and um, social movements and, you know, just the experience of like being a person in this capitalist like system, this racially capitalist system. You just see that throughout hip hop. So what are you, what are some of your biggest influences, I guess? Right. People who kind of especially draw on and um, power, I guess, that that sort of like that sort of music, right? Or that sort of idea. Yeah, I mean, like, No Name is a huge influence on me. I think she walks the tightrope of being the CNN of Chicago while also, like, sprinkling on top, like, uh, critique of of capitalism, of racial capitalism, particularly settler colonialism and things like that. Uh, I think she does a beautiful job of doing that. I think on the on the side of being more critically conscious, I I I hate the term socially conscious as well, but I think there is kind of this 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 thread of critically conscious people that are critiquing the things that they're seeing and not necessarily putting yeah, on them. Exactly. Um, I think I think Kendrick does a really good job of that. Um, I have complicated feelings about Killer Mike. Uh, given I just did an episode on the anti fada talking shit about him. Yeah, I've talked shit about yeah, him yeah, on so yeah. many different. Yeah, yeah. Still come on the show though, bro. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You need to come on the pod, bro. Hey, come on the pod. Friend of the pod. 
Um, particularly like his embrace of revolutionary aesthetics through RTJ, like trying mm, to yeah. fuck off, and it's like, oh, you about like shooting the COs in the head and burning down the prison until Mayor Lance Bottoms calls, motherfucker. We like, can burn down the prison, but not the Wendy's, though, bro. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, I think he's had. I think he does a good job of putting our lived experiences in historical context. Mm. Um, in terms of like the, you know, the various administrations and how they've influenced the life on the ground um, and critiquing various administrations in a way that I think some other hip hop artists tend to be more celebratory of people like Obama. Most deaf. I mean, obviously, I think that, uh, you know, Black on Both Sides and albums like that, getting into very specific pieces of policy, like our policy around water privatization and and things like that. Uh, he You know, he stands out for sure. And so those are some people I guess I like I go to for remembering that power in hip hop in addition to the artists I listen to just because they're fun to buy yeah, about. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, like, again, yo, like whether I'm listening to like, you know, Future or I'm listening to like Black Star or I'm listening to like, you know, a Tribe Called Quest, it doesn't matter. I think all of that is in the canon, right? Yeah. Of like what it means to be like black working class, yeah. right? You know, what it means to be a human being living under capitalism. Right. So what what do I refer you to as your title? Is it County Commissioner Mariah Parker? You know, Commissioner, Mar- Commissioner Parker, I guess. I mean, Conrad Parker works too. Fuck I, it. I actually fucked that Conrad Parker, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so what's next for you, Conrad? What what is next for you, man? Are you seeking higher office? So I got reelected for a four year term earlier this year, and so I do intend to serve out for an, at least another four years. Um, there's a number of higher offices I would consider. Like, I would love to run and get crushed in a congressional race just to bring, like, a housing guarantee and, like, socialist ideas. And come back, like, three, three, four years later and sweep that shit, mop that shit up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm re- currently represented by Jody Heights. Uh, so no idea who that is. But I oh, fuck that guy. He fucking sucks. Yeah, so, um, it, but it, it, it's a Republican stronghold, but... I really wonder, like, because so few uh, Democrats run strong campaigns, I wonder what would happen if Iran is an und- independent. You would I wipe would, it out, bro. All these niggas, all these niggas, all Republicans. You heard it first, yeah. I really wonder about that kind of messaging, but like what that would do in rural and rural Georgia. Especially if you had the same approach you did when he first ran, right? Right, yeah, yeah. With working people. Yeah, with working people and just being like, yeah, do you want the billionaires to fucking, you know, pay their fair share? Everybody wants that. Everybody wants that. Well, Even conservatives, working class conservatives want that, man. Rural hospitals are closing all over Georgia. I could be like, y'all want your hospital to be open? Yeah. Well, I have a little thing. I have this little idea called Medicare for all. Yeah. And they'd be like, they, you don't even have to say the word democratic socialist. They're just like, all right, dude, I get health care. Cool. Yeah. I get yeah. health care. Y'all going to reopen my rural Georgia hospital? <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So I'm interested to see what would happen if I were to run for Congress just for the shit of it, you know, to see what happens. Uh, so I, yeah, so I ran and won this year. Well, I ran out of votes this time, actually, interestingly enough. Oh, nice. Yeah. My, my biggest would-be opponent just fucking moved to Korea. <laughs> like, like not even moved like the Kansas, but Korea. Yeah, he was like so embarrassed by how I got him last time. He was just like, "I'm out now." That's how you fucking do it. Yo. And That's so I was like, really, it's kind of disappointing because I think political campaigns are really important for like forcing uh, political education, let people and democracy, letting people choose. But like, yeah. you know, they gave me another four years to try things out. Mm-hmm. I actually, got more votes this time. <laughs> nice. More votes this time. Like, if you know, people chose me because they could chose choose not to vote for me if they didn't like what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. You know, they could just mark no one on the ballot. But more people than last time actually voted for me. It's interesting. 
but you know, the mayor's seat will be up in like five or six years. Mm. I think like running on a campaign and homelessness to do a homes guarantee for Athens to close the county jail um, and things like that. I, 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 I haven't seen a lot of um, local races across Georgia that have run on like universal idea, like programs and ideas like that, where it's not like, oh, we're going to like support affordable housing. No, we're going to end homelessness. Yeah. Like I would love to see that. And I would be interested to see how the public would respond to a campaign of that sort as well as the power of being the mayor that would be pretty dope oh hell yeah yeah that'd be pretty ill so we'll see about that maybe in six years but other than that i mean i got a lot of work to do four years isn't a lot of time so we'll see what i can get done with the position of power that i currently have well like as mlk said man you know there are too many people of ill will making uh the best use of their time and not enough people like you for example right that are making a good use of the time that we have so yeah Yo, like, dude, this was fucking tight, yo. I'm gonna, tight. I'm gonna come back. Yo, you gotta come back. You gotta come back after the election, cause uh, I'm gonna maybe maybe I'm tell, I'm saying this for the first time. Who knows, man? Um, but you know, I want to have like a panel. I'm thinking of it now, a panel after the election, sort of um dissecting sort of what happened. Um, especially if it goes the way that probably you and I are inclined to think it'll go, and it's it's uh. I mean, I guess it depends what side you're on, if it's good or bad, but um, I don't think it's going to be good. No matter what, it's going to be a fucking shit show. Exactly. Everyone's going to lose. I really don't think these libs have any idea. They're going to, like, put on their pussy hats again and just get gunned down. They're going to tweet through it. Down by right-wing militias. Like, they're really not ready for this shit. They're going to tweet through it, and not only are you going to, like, fucking crush them on Twitter, but um, actually out there in the streets, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to build solidarity. Mariah, yo, plug. What do you have, man, to plug? Yo, you have any music coming up? You have any actions, especially? I mean, yeah, so I don't have any actions or anything, but I can plug. So I have a podcast also, which I would love to have you on sometime. Yeah. It's called it? Waiting on Reparations. It's on iHeartRadio. You can catch it any every Thursday, anywhere you get your podcast. It's all about the intersections of hip hop and politics, the way the public policy has shaped the hip hop community and vice versa. And so um, you can catch that anywhere you listen. Um, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Mariah F O R Athens at Mariah for Athens. Uh, I mostly just be over here. I'm mostly on Twitter just to see Aaron's tweets and just like yeah. be live because I'm over here. I can't say shit because it's gonna get picked up on the newspaper. I know. I know. Suck my fucking dick. Oh my god. Oh. I'm so seeing your tweets and I'll be like, thank God somebody said it. Vicariously, yeah. Thank God somebody said it. So yeah, but you can follow me on Twitter. I'll be on there. Um, and then Lingua Franca. Just Google Lingua Franca with two Q's, and you can find my music on Bandcamp, Spotify, SoundCloud, etc. Yeah, I really recommend y'all check out her music, yo. It will, it will also give you life in these bleak-ass times, yeah. Appreciate it. Shit, man. Comrade Commissioner. Comrade Parker. Comrade Parker. Comrade Parker, yeah. No, long time coming. I'm so glad that we did this super fun.